Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and one of the podcasts of the Christians for Liberty Network. If you have not listened to the other shows, the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, the Godarchy Podcast, the Reformed Libertarians Podcast, and Good News, Bad News on our YouTube channel, you need to go and listen and or watch those today. Oh, actually, after we get done this episode. And in this episode, I actually have Alex Bernardo with me, who is the host of the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. and. He's got some really good content over on his podcast, which I'm going to recommend, but we're going to have a conversation about all kinds of things, libertarianism, Protestantism, hermeneutics, how to make a good argument. So I think you're in for a really great conversation here. Thanks, Alex, for joining us. Hey, I really appreciate having me on, Doug. I'm excited for it. Awesome. So I had no bio for you because I figure I'm just going to start off and ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself. And you can just also just kind of go right on in with how did you become a libertarian? All right. Yeah, that sounds great. So again, I am the host of the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. I have been a Christian for, I guess, man, it just the time has flown, but I guess it's been about 17 or 18 years now. I became a Christian when I was in high school. And I guess my background kind of segues into how I became a libertarian. I don't know, for whatever reason, I've always had like this anti-authoritarian streak, and I'm not sure where it came from because my parents are really good people and I lived a very good life as a child, but I just never liked having other people tell me what to do. Like if I am going to make a decision, I want it to be the decision that I make. I'm sure you can relate to that. Like every libertarian that I've ever met has just had this like deep inside of their bones. Yeah. Do you have to learn things the hard way? Sometimes right, yeah, I 100% have to learn things the hard way. Learn my, my own lessons. <laughs> yeah, it's for real. But when I became a Christian, I realized when I started reading the Bible that if you were going to put your faith in Christ, that you had to make that decision for yourself and you couldn't force somebody else to make that decision. So for me, it was like a really serious personal decision that I made. No one pushed me into that. Like I made that choice for myself and I knew that I needed to extend that to other people. And so as a Christian, I felt like it was always my responsibility to try to represent the gospel to others through the way that I live my life without trying to use force to make them accept Christ. And Mm. so that's always been like a fundamental principle for me that we shouldn't make people do things that they don't want to do. And for a long time, I didn't have any real political philosophy. I'm from Kentucky, so I always kind of just considered myself to be like a conservative because that's just what everybody else was. But I didn't really know the difference between progressives or conservatives or anything back then. And I went to school to get my degree in biblical studies. And I started college in 2007. And that was right around the time that anti-imperial studies was becoming very popular within kind of the biblical studies guild and academics. And so there were a lot of books that were published when I was in school on Paul and empire. And as I was reading them, I realized that if I was going to take like Jesus's messianic identity as the Christ, the king of the entire world, seriously, that would have political consequences for me. And those political consequences entailed me not trusting in any human institution. Like that was where that led me, but I didn't know who I was politically. And there was a time in college where I was reading the news. I had a subscription to Time Magazine at that time, which is just ridiculous to think about now because of how biased they are. I would read that and I'd be like, well, I don't like care if people smoke pot. And there's just a bunch of social issues that I might not do that stuff myself, but it's, I don't really feel like it's my responsibility to prevent other people from making those choices. It's my responsibility to present them with the gospel. And then they have to make the choice as to whether or not they're going to follow Christ on their own. 
So that was kind of my guiding principle throughout school. And I remember going into the 2016 election because a lot of people, and I'm sure, I think you too, Doug, you became a libertarian because of Ron Paul, right? Yes, that would be sort of my journey. It came from Glenn Beck then to Ron Paul. Yeah. Yeah. So mine was not as cool as Ron Paul. Mine was through Gary Johnson, which I realize is kind so of you're controversial. <laughs> I am the one. It's going to get even worse, what I'm about to say. And so I'll explain everything here in a minute. But I, I am, Dave I'm Smith a is not going to want to hear what you're about to say, I bet. Oh, right? no, it's, it's bad. So I'm a public school teacher, which I understand is like the greatest sin for a libertarian. I mean, one of the reasons so why I'm going to correct you, you're a government school teacher. No, correct. That's exactly right. And again, I've been, this is my sixth year teaching in a government school. And I recommend that everyone sends their kids to private school. <laughs> but anyway, I was in ministry for a long time. So I was a bivocational minister for like eight years. When I graduated, I was in ministry and doing that. And that was in youth ministry. And that was my thing. And so I decided as my time in youth ministry was coming to an end, that if I was a teacher, that I have an opportunity. I love history it was going to be a great opportunity for me to teach. And I'd also have an opportunity to like hang out with kids and everything like that on a full-time basis, which is great. And really do like that kind of ministry work. And so I started my training to become a teacher. I had to go back and get my master's degree and I had to take a class in political philosophy. So I started listening to podcasts from the Hoover Institution, which is like a conservative think Mm -hmm. tank, but they have people like Thomas Sowell who are really good. And so that was my first introduction into politics. And this was on early 2016. And I remember one day, I had no idea who I was going to vote for because I didn't like Trump and I didn't like Hillary Clinton. And Anderson Cooper had a special on CNN where he talked to both Gary Johnson and the Libertarian Party and Jill Stein and the Green Party. And I was like, well, I'll give these a listen and see what they have to say. And so I listened to Gary Johnson being interviewed by Anderson Cooper. And I was like, that's what I believe. I guess I'm a libertarian. And so it was listening to Gary Johnson on CNN that convinced me to be a libertarian. I'm thankful for that because Gary Johnson was not a very radical libertarian, to say the least. And I think at that point in my life, I wouldn't have been open to radical libertarianism, but it was just enough to give me the label and then to start exploring what libertarianism meant on my own. And then all the pieces just fell into place for me. Yeah. Okay. If I were going to like, I can't really contradict that story, of course, but like if I were going to say to really correct you so that you're a true libertarian, really, it was Thomas Sowell. Well, yes. No, no, you're you're 100% correct. It was absolutely Thomas Sowell. His economics... Gary Johnson gave you the name for it. Yeah, he did. Yeah, I, yeah I'm yeah. thankful that Gary Johnson gave me the label and he was a very moderate way in to libertarianism for me. Yeah. No, it's all good. I mean, I used to work for Apple and I was meet people in retail stores and I somehow mentioned that I was a libertarian to one of the customers that was there. And she's like, oh, well, this year you have someone you can vote for. And I'm like... Okay, I always have somebody I could vote for. What do you mean? Like this year I have somebody I can vote for. There's always a libertarian candidate on the ballot. Like somehow he even was able to garner the attention to people who didn't really care, but they were like, oh yeah, there's a libertarian candidate out there now. And so I guess I'm not as cynical about the Gary Johnson, that whole campaign. I mean, the Bill Weld thing was kind of like, really? But as a personality, Gary Johnson, I think was okay. It was acceptable, I suppose. So anyway, but we have you now to call yourself a libertarian rather than not calling yourself a libertarian. (laughs) The other half of your podcast is the word Protestant. And that name could be associated with something that has to do like with its origins, which is like, I'm an anti-Catholic person or whatever. So I would just want to ask you, like, what kind of Protestant are you? I mean, in the sense that I'm not Catholic, I'm a Protestant, but I don't really think of myself that way. Yeah, that's a great question. And when I find out what kind of Protestant I am, I will tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, I was actually born and baptized Catholic. My dad was Catholic and my mom was Methodist. Mm. And 
really the person in my life who was really dedicated to making sure that I was a part of the faith was my grandmother, who was a diehard Roman Catholic. And so I went through all of the processes that you go through as a kid. All the catechisms and stuff. Yeah, confession and all of that stuff in the Catholic Church. And then my parents kind of had a falling out with the Catholic Church. And we started going to a Methodist church for a couple of years. And then we wound up going to a Lutheran church. And that was the church that I was formed in. And I went to like a restoration movement college. And I've had friends that are all across the theological spectrum. And so for me, I like the label Protestant because I think what that represents is that as a Christian, I believe that the Bible is the only source of authority. So that's what separates me from a Catholic who believes that there is authority that can be derived from the hierarchy of the church and also the traditions of the church. So Mm, for me, Protestant is a convenient label for somebody that believes that the Bible is the only source of authority. I'm not anti-Catholic at all. Like Catholics or Christians, I have a lot of really great friends that are Catholic and I really respect their faith and their level of commitment. Mm -hmm. But it all comes down to the fact that I, as a Christian, believe that the Bible is the only source of authority. And so for me, it's very difficult, especially since I've been involved in so many different churches and I've worked professionally in both the Lutheran and the Methodist church. It's very difficult for me to label myself as a particular denomination because as someone that thinks that the Bible is, again, the only source of authority, I think putting a denominational label on my faith would limit my ability to try to accurately interpret the Bible and allow the Bible to speak for all that it's worth. I don't want to say that I'm committed to a certain set of doctrines from one sect of Protestantism Mm -hmm. because I think that that in and of itself makes it impossible for me to make the Bible the only source of authority in my life. And I realize that there are problems with that position too. That's why I choose the yeah. broad label Protestant. I just don't. Right. There's people who do what you're saying you don't want to do, but they still hold to scriptural authority, like sola scriptura yeah. authority. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And again, like I've been involved in several different kinds of Protestant churches and there are amazing people that have a ton of faith. Right now, my wife and I, we go to a Nazarene church and we're mm-hmm. not Nazarene at all. But we like that the church teaches the Bible and we like that the church serves the community. And as long as the church does that, the labels don't really matter to me. That's what the church is called to do. That's what I care about. Yeah. So those two elements on your show, I think you blend them fairly well because you will... It's funny, I'm listening to your episodes and I'm 20, 30 minutes in and then all of a sudden you say... So for those of you who are on the Protestant side of the listener audience of this podcast, and I was like, oh yeah, I kind of forgot that like you were talking to both and then you tie them together... So how do you do that on your show? Like just give our listeners of this podcast a little bit of a taste of like how you blend those together and how you think about those and conceptualize being those two identities. Yeah, I really appreciate that question. For me, it's just, I'm really interested in political philosophy, especially since it has been like, I never thought five or six years ago that I would ever have like a really deep political philosophy. I just, I didn't think I was going to care about it that much. And so it's been really interesting to kind of grow and learn in that. And it's great to have an outlet to talk about that. And I really do feel like I'm not someone that thinks that there's like a libertarian reading of the Bible. Like I don't believe that we can read all of these libertarian principles out of the Bible. But if you're reading the Bible faithfully in its historical context, and you're really taking seriously what it means to be a part of Abraham's family, the family of God, and what it means to worship Jesus as the king of the entire world, then I think libertarianism is the best conclusion that you can draw from the content that we Mm -hmm. have in the Bible. And so for me, it's very natural to try to find ways to connect 
those two ideas together. And the great thing about having a show like this that is the product of my own creation is that like there are episodes where I only do biblical studies and then there are episodes where I only do like political philosophy. And there are a lot of episodes where I can kind of combine them. And sometimes I lean heavier on the politics and sometimes I lean heavier on the theology and on the Bible. Mm -hmm. But it's just great to be able to try to find ways to bring those two worlds together because I think there are a lot of really interesting connections between libertarian political philosophy and biblical studies. There are just not very many people out there that have the background to bring those together. Yeah, yeah. What are some of the favorite episodes you've done, like topics that you've covered? Yeah, man, I would say that there have been so many great ones. I would say probably my favorite one to this point was, I guess, episode 15, where I had Lori Calhoun from the Libertarian Institute on to talk about the military-industrial complex. Mm, okay, She's incredibly intelligent. I'm going to have her back on later on this month or in early February to talk about a book that she did on the just war theory. But that was one of those episodes where I read the article that she published over at the Libertarian Institute, and I had her on the show. And I didn't want to ask her questions. I just wanted to sit there and listen to what she had to say. It was a really incredible episode because she's so knowledgeable. And I hate that it was the first ever like online recording I did because it sounds like garbage. But the information is really great. (laughs) I like that. And then the episode that I did on the quest for the historical Jesus, I had wanted for a long time to be able to sit down and kind of write out all my thoughts on the quest. And so that was a really fun episode just to plan for, kind of thinking about how all of that worked. So those have been some of the ones that have really stood out to me. I actually just earlier today listened to that one on the quest for the historical Jesus. And I had not ever, like I I knew about it. And in the 90s, when I first got wind of it, it was John MacArthur making fun of how silly it was that they used this little system on whether Jesus definitely said versus definitely didn't say versus probably said, like there's some sort of system. And I remember kind of chuckling and laughing at that. And then I got introduced to N.T. Wright 2004 or whatever. And like he would mention those kinds of things, but he would never talk about them in a sort of pejorative sense or mocking sense. Like he would just talk about them as respected scholars. And I knew he wasn't quite where some of the New Quest people were, but that was like kind of all my introduction was you did a really great job. At least, I mean, I don't know how accurate you were because you're the only source I have on it, but (laughs) you do a really good job of describing from your vantage point what exactly the history is and the different eras, I guess would be the best way to put it or timeframes of the historical Jesus sort of quest, I guess is the name of it, right? And so uh, that was kind of a really nice primer for me on understanding that in particular. So yeah, no, that's really cool. Actually, you did more than one episode on that, didn't you? I did. So what triggered me to write the episode in the first place is there's a really fantastic New Testament scholar. He's an agnostic, so he's not a Christian, but his work is rock solid named James Crossley. And he teaches, I think, at King's College in London. But he has recently proposed, and that's what the second episode is about, a next quest for the historical Jesus. So Mm. thinking about how biblical scholars can conduct historical Jesus research based on the questions that are being asked in the humanities in the 21st century. So kind of updating and trying to push the quest for the historical Jesus forward. And a lot of his proposals were really interesting. And I wanted to deal with that on the show. But before I did that, I felt like it would be a good idea to go over with my audience what the original quote unquote three phases of the quest for the historical Jesus were before addressing that. So it was a really great opportunity to kind of deal with this brand new issue while also going back and reviewing a lot of the stuff that was really interesting to me. Yeah, no, that's really cool. So I had no idea that it went back to 1778 and even earlier. So I was thinking this was like 1920s and on. I guess I can't say 20s. I guess I say 1920s now because we're in the 20s. Isn't that wild? Isn't it? (laughs) That's pretty crazy. 
Who would you say are some of your biggest influences, either theologically or even we can talk about politics? Well, let's start with theology. Yeah, theologically, I would have to say that Michael Gorman and N.T. Wright are probably my two greatest influences. N.T. Wright was the first scholar whose work that I really dove into. And I remember when I was in school, I think it was my, it was either my sophomore or early in my junior year. I guess it was my sophomore year. I had to read N.T. Wright's book, Justification, for a class that I was taking on Paul. And I just remember I really liked his writing style and I really liked the way that he presented all of his arguments. And what I really respect about N.T. Wright, even though a lot of my positions aren't the same now as they were before, and I'm not like my theology is not quite as aligned as it was with his when I was in college, I really appreciate how great of a writer he is. And he has this incredible ability to take these really difficult academic concepts and distill them down in ways that the average person can understand. And even his academic writing is really fun to read. Whereas a lot of these New Testament scholars, their works are incredibly important and they have a lot of great information to share. But they're just really boring to read. Like the books are just like, they're just dry. And NT <laughs> writes a great writer and a great communicator. Yeah. And I remember reading like his book, Jesus and the Victory of God. I mean, that book completely overturned the way that I understood the gospels. And again, going back to his presentation that Jesus is kind of like this great apocalyptic prophet, but he's also the Messiah and the king of the world. Like that was one of those books that really got me thinking about the ramifications of my Christology for the way that I understand politics in the world. And then Michael Gorman is another great New Testament scholar. I criticized him in episode three because he fundamentally misunderstands capitalism. That's about the only thing that I think that he gets wrong in his work. He has this incredible book called Cruciformity, which I think is the greatest book on Christian ethics ever written. And in it, he argues based on a reading of Philippians chapter two, that the fundamental ethic for all Christians is like, what he terms cruciformity, that if you want to understand how Christians ought to act towards other people, it is conformed to the cross, that the way that we approach everyone in our lives has to be through self-sacrifice and self-emptying to try to edify them. And that book was just incredibly enlightening to Mm -hmm. me, and it solved a lot of moral questions that I had about the New Testament. So Michael Gorman's Cruciformity, I would highly recommend it. It's a very thick book. And Michael Gorman's one of those authors who is not always fun to read, but the information that he has is Mm. incredible in that book. And it really changed me on a personal level in terms of the way that I relate to other people. His thesis there that you describe it, it sounds very similar to Greg Boyd and what Greg Boyd's doing. What's his thesis? Well, Boyd's is a little bit more about hermeneutics than it is about ethics or Christian living. And it has to do with like how we read the scripture should always point to the crucified Christ. Yes, Not just like point to Jesus, generically point to Jesus, but like point to the image of God we see on the cross. Yeah, That would be sort of his thesis on how do we interpret scripture. So anyway, maybe that's a rabbit hole you can go down. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, that's a really beautiful point. One of the points that Gorman makes in his book that is incredible is that he has a section on how our faith should be like a narrative faith. And so he makes the point that when people look at the way that we live as Christians, that they should see the narrative of Jesus's death and resurrection in our Mm -hmm. lives by the way that we treat other people, which sounds a lot like what you were saying Boyd is arguing in his book. The other guy that I got to plug real quick too, because it was a major turning point for the way that I interpreted the New Testament is a scholar named Bruce Winner. And he has a really great book called After Paul Left Corinth. And he is what we call a social scientific scholar of the New Testament. And so he doesn't offer a theological reading of, it's a commentary on 1 Corinthians, that particular book. He doesn't offer a theological reading of 1 Corinthians. Instead, what he does is he goes through 1 Corinthians line by line and tries to analyze 
what Paul's language would have sounded like to his Corinthian audience. And so he brings in all of this Greco-Roman source material in an attempt to try to understand how the Corinthians would have perceived Paul in their first century context. And then the ways that his rhetoric interacted with the kind of language that would have been expected of a first century Greek thinker and a cosmopolitan context. And so his book, just completely changed the way that I read the New Testament in terms of thinking about the historical backgrounds of these documents that are included in it. And I highly recommend his work because it is completely different than offering a theological analysis because N.T. Wright's a historian as well. But people like Bruce Winter, I think, have a deeper level. They really try to appreciate the Greco-Roman context in a way that I think that scholars have one eye open to making theological claims just don't in their work. And so mm. Bruce Winter is another really major, He was it was a big turning point in my approach to the the New Testament. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I actually, I don't think I've ever heard of him. So that's good to know. So gotten to know you a little bit here and our audience has gotten to know you a little bit here. So let's talk about a couple of topics that after listening to your podcast and wanting to have a conversation with you about, I don't have any particular topic or particular questions in mind, but I do want you to kind of lay out a little bit about how you tend to approach the scripture. You talked about scriptural authority. It's our only source of authority as Christians. So I think it would be kind of a fun conversation. Like what is, when you say scripture is authoritative, why can you confidently say that? Yeah, so that's an excellent question. And the way that I look at it, so one of the things that I think a lot of people misunderstand about the Bible in our Western context is that we think of the Bible as a single book, like that the Bible mm -hmm. is just this kind of one monolithic book, when in reality, it's a library. And there are several books in the Bible written by different authors at different periods of time, and they all have different social and cultural contexts, and they're all writing to different audiences. And if we don't take those factors into consideration, we're reading the Bible, then we're only going to wind up reading our own cultural context into the scriptures and not allowing the Bible to speak to us yeah. from its position within history. And so I think a lot of people just fundamentally, again, misunderstand the fact that it's a library and not just one book. And the corollary to that is that when you are interpreting the Bible, you can't just assume that if you open up the Bible to Leviticus, that you can read it in the exact same way that you read Romans, mm. because Leviticus and Romans are designed to do two fundamentally different things. And so when you read the scripture, you have to do your background work to try to understand the context within which each of these works was written, you know, both the historical context, what did the world of Leviticus, which was written or at least compiled in the ancient Near East, what did that world look like? And then if you're talking about the letter to the Romans, what does the Greco-Roman world look like? What would Paul's audience have looked like? How would Paul's rhetoric have sounded to people that were living in the first century? And if you don't take those factors into consideration, then it's very easy to read in whatever sort of theological positions you want into the scriptures and not allow the Bible to speak for itself. The reason why I think the Bible is so significant and so important is that it is the best source material that we have for the events surrounding the life of Jesus. There's nothing else that gets us closer to what happened in history than the scriptures. And I think that in general, when you interpret them based on the rules of historical interpretation that are common to all texts throughout history, where, you know, just the basic methods of historical study that all historians use mm -hmm. to study any period, the Bible is very reliable. Like it gives us accurate information. Now, this doesn't mean that I think that like everything in the Bible necessarily had to have happened in history. I think that there are plenty of places in the Bible, again, going back to genre and context, I think that there are certainly works in the Bible that are designed to be read mm -hmm. as poetry or as symbolism. And then there are other works that 
that are designed to be taken in the concrete sense in which the author has written them. But the Bible gets us as close to the events as we can possibly get. Therefore, it should be our guiding star for all of our practice as Christians. I don't know. Does that make sense? I know that threw a lot at you. Does that make sense? No, no, no it's, yes, it does. And I've often wrestled with the, I don't want to say wrestled with, but I've often contemplated the ways in which people will justify their belief in the authority of scripture. And sometimes it's based on a certain type of doctrine or sort of faith belief in a way that scripture has to be in order for them to trust it or others. It's similar to what you were describing and other people just simply haven't actually contemplated like, why do I believe the Bible's authoritative? Like you can say, well, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Or the shorter version, which is, I guess, technically more correct. God said it, that settles it, right? You could say that, but it's like, well, that's not a reflective way of saying, okay, here's what I understand the Bible to be, and here's why I take it as authoritative. I know N.T. Wright, he sees the Bible as authoritative for a number of reasons that are slightly different from what I grew up with. I think you talked about his book, The Last Word, a little bit on your podcast. Oh, you know what? It's funny. I read a pre-release copy of that book, and it's called The Last Word, and I have that on my shelf, but it's Scripture and the Authority of God. So I actually have the one that's called The Last Word, but it's weird because when like people like N.T. Wright release books, I think that they have one title that they'll use in Europe and then like another title they'll use yeah, in America. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> okay. One of my seminary professors was reading it to write a blurb for the book. And he gave me the copy after he was done because I went to the pub after class and he was like, hey, you can have this because you know, you're asking these kinds oh, of questions awesome. and this that's will awesome. work for you. So yeah, that was really kind of cool. There's no page numbers in the whole thing. They all say zero, zero <laughs> where the page numbers are. And there's like awesome. reference to be added or something like that. <laughs> it's like, uh, okay, well, I can get what I need out of this. Anyway, back to biblical authority. I think a lot of Christians are not as reflective about biblical authority. And I've sort of landed at the point of like, look, you can say that you believe in biblical authority for particular reasons. But if we both arrive at, we both believe the Bible is authoritative, that's good enough for me because then we can then discuss the actual, how do we interpret those things? And I really do, you're the first person outside of where I first heard about it who has talked about the Bible being a library rather than literally just a single book. I mean, we do think of it as a single book. And if we want to talk about the book that was authored by God, okay, fine. We can say that it's the book authored by God that he wants us to have and it's been preserved for us, right? But that whole idea of a community library where there's just a lot of diversity in the scriptures is, I think, really helpful and really important, really critical to remember as we think about, well, how is the scripture authoritative? So yeah, what you're saying totally resonates. I want to ask though, let's see, you mentioned the different like parts of scripture, like sometimes it's historical, sometimes it's a parable, sometimes it's this or that. And like, sometimes it's really obvious, right? Like mm -hmm. there's a parable. He spoke to them in parables and then you, right. know, you read the parable. <laughs> like it's really, really obvious, right? But like at some point you have to look at some parts of the Old Testament and be like, how do we decide whether or not this is meant to be historical or maybe a mixture or maybe there's like, maybe it was based on something historical, but there's like an agenda that the writer has in writing it in a certain way. And so it's okay that it's embellished. Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's very difficult to do. And to a certain extent, I mean, when you're talking about texts that were produced in the ancient Near East, unfortunately, the sort like the primary sources that we have to compare the Old Testament against, there's not a lot of information that we have. And I think that a lot of people fail to appreciate just how little we know about antiquity, because we just don't have the sources that mm. we need to have a comprehensive picture. But 
Old Testament scholarship, at least in the modern era, has been going on for the last 150, 200 years. And so when it comes to texts like Genesis or like the prophets, you have to compare it to other texts that were written in the ancient Near East and try to see, okay, so we kind of know what these writers were doing in these texts. So how does this relate to what it appears that the writers of particular books of the Old Testament were doing in their context? And then again, comparing it to things like genre and the rhetorical conventions of the ancient Near East, picking up on like cultural and geographical indicators in the text, like all of those factors have to be taken into consideration. And I think too, going through each book line by line, trying to make a close reading of the text and see internally, does the author give me any indication or does the author give his audience any indication of how he wants this particular work to be interpreted? And that's very difficult to do. And again, if you read I mean, you went to seminary, so you understand this. If you read any Old Testament or New Testament scholarship, I think there are, I read a statistic the other day, I think there are like 8,500 professional biblical scholars in the world right now. And I guarantee you that if you got all of them in a room, they would produce about 100,000 different interpretations (laughs) of every text in the Bible. So there is no consensus. That doesn't worry me because I think that anyone can pick up the Bible and read it and learn that Jesus loves them and that Jesus died for them. Like that message comes through clear 2,000 years after it was written. But when it comes to trying to understand very controversial passages like Genesis, I would include like Jonah and that, Daniel, like all of these really hot button texts in the Old Testament, we have to be extremely careful. We have to try to be as sensitive to their historical and rhetorical context as possible. And we also have to have the humility to realize that we're probably not in our lifetimes going to come to an academic consensus as to how to best interpret those texts. And then also to live with the fact that there are forever going to be Christians that will interpret those texts different than us. And those Christians are just as sincere in their faith as we are. But they're wrong. Yeah, How well, do we deal yeah. with that, right? Yeah, well, yeah, that's the <laughs> one of the most beautiful things. That's, it's a great point. The thing is, and I think N.T. Wright makes this point in one of his books. He says that he thinks he's dead right about 80% of the things that he believes. And he thinks he's dead wrong about 20% of the things he believes. He just doesn't know which 20% he's wrong yeah, yeah. about. So he can't change it. And that's kind of been my go-to. And so I'm just, it's one of the reasons why I keep on trying to read and study because there's so much to learn. And you went to seminary, so you get this, like people think that because you graduated Bible college or seminary that you like are an expert on all these things. Like, I don't know, man, a lot of my positions have changed since I graduated. Yeah. Not only is there that sort of experience of like you've changed because you now have the tools to like change and grow as you learn and read the scripture. You're not really familiar with every part of the Bible. It's like, wait, you guys just don't sit and read the Bible for three years straight or whatever. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I have a really good example of this too. Over Christmas break, I read a book by Patrick Schreiner is his name, and it's called The Ascension of Christ. It's out on Lexham Press. It's a really great book. And in it, he goes through the way that the theology of the ascension and then Jesus' session or sitting at the right hand of God in heaven works its way out in the New Testament. And it was like, it was embarrassing for me to read that book because the ascension is like one of the most important aspects of our faith. And I completely missed it in a number of New Testament texts. And I just remember like just a couple of weeks ago, going through Hebrews again, after having read that book, and there were just several passages in Hebrews that just clicked in ways that they never had before. And, you know, I've read Hebrews probably 50 times. I had no idea until I read that book. Can you give us an example of that? Because I knew that he had that book. And what's interesting, he also wrote a book about the political gospel, which I don't know if you've read, but no, he's on sabbatical right now. And I've reached out to him 
And it's like, I got an email that he's on sabbatical till August. <laughs> and it's like forever from now, we're recording this in January 2023. And so I know that there's a book out there that I want to interview him on. And then I was looking up his books and I saw this. But anyway, back to the topic of the Ascension. Can you give us one point of that? Because I look at the Ascension and I think, oh, okay, that happened. Right. He's coming back. I don't know what else to do with that other than the hopefulness, right? What did you see in Hebrews? What's something that you saw that was eye-opening for you because of having read Schreiner's book? Yeah. So again, like in the Old Testament, the three categories of people that are anointed by God with the spirit are prophet, priests, and kings. And so the thesis of his book is to demonstrate how Christ perfects the role of prophet, priest, and king. And that's only possible through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, that all of Mm. those things have to have happened in order for Jesus to perfectly fulfill those roles. And so he has a chapter on Jesus's kingship, on Jesus's role as a prophet, and then also on Jesus's role as the high priest. And so he spends a lot of time in that chapter talking about how It's Jesus being constantly in the presence of God that works theologically for the author of Hebrews as he presents Jesus as kind of the complete sacrifice. The reason why we don't need the sacrificial system anymore is because Jesus' sacrifice is the final sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't need to be done anymore. And that the mechanism for that in Hebrews is that Jesus is in the presence of God continually offering that sacrifice for our sins. And so you pick up on that when you read the book of Hebrews. It's very obvious in the text there, but I had never thought about how significant the location of Jesus was for the writer of Hebrews theology of atonement. Like it matters not just that Jesus died and was raised, but that he's literally in the presence of God right now. It just clears up, like especially Hebrews 5 through 10, like the passages where the writer really dives into the sacrificial system and the significance of the atonement. It just makes a lot more sense of some of the passages that are more cloudy to me, thinking about Jesus being seated at the right hand of Father and that being like the conception that uh, the writer of Hebrews had. And it's the same thing in the book of Acts too. The location of Jesus after his resurrection kind of hangs over all of the speeches of Paul and Peter and Acts. And I'd never noticed that before I read his Mm. book. And it's just amazing how like those nuances bring out a whole new level of dynamic in the New Testament that I just wasn't aware of beforehand. Mm. So as you say that there's going to be a lot of Christians are just going to disagree on things. How do you decide for yourself? And maybe this is a broader question. How do you decide that this is something important to really get right? Like the whole 80-20 that you said N.T. Wright talks about, it's like, okay, like I know that the physical resurrection is like really important to get right. Like to have a solid, firm, "Mm, I'm going to stick to this, right? But there are a handful of places in the scriptures where I'm kind of like, eh, I know scholars disagree and neither of them really challenge my faith or question my faith. If I embrace this one or that one, one for me is the authorship of the Pauline epistles or the like pseudo (laughs) Pauline. It's like, I don't really care. I don't know how this affects me that much. Maybe I don't realize it and it really does. How do you discern what's major and what's minor? Yeah, I mean, again, for me, I think what matters above all is faith. And again, even the term faith is variously defined by different sects of Christianity. It just depends yeah. on your theological background, even how you would understand a term like that. But I think the problem with human knowledge 
is that we are all born into a particular social and cultural context. And that social and cultural context is going to shape the way that we understand the world Mm -hmm. around us. And so just because somebody comes to faith in God, that doesn't eliminate all of the intellectual baggage that they bring with them to their faith. And God is aware of that process. And it's one of the reasons why he communicated with his ancient audience in ways that they understood in their ancient context, because that was the way that he had to get through to them. And so I think that what really matters is a spirit-driven response to the knowledge that somebody has about Jesus, right? So, and I think that in every sincere Christian that I've ever met, there are two characteristics. There's the desire to serve God, and there's the desire to love other people. And I think that is the foundation for your faith. And that has to be driven by the Spirit. And I think that's very deeply embedded in the New Testament. So for me, it is, again, the desire to love God and the desire to serve other people that is the foundation of our faith. And then we build upon that from there. When it comes to theology, again, and I'm sure, I actually, I kind of want to get your perspective on this when I'm done talking. But for me, I think that a lot of these theological issues are incredibly interesting and incredibly important. And it's really incumbent upon us as Christians to try to work through our faith and then continue to build and develop our faith. But there are so many issues that are just up for grabs. It's very difficult for me to determine Mm -hmm. which issue is really rock solid and which one is not. And then how do I know for the issues that I think are really important? How do I know that I'm not reading my own biases into the text? And then again, when that happens, what I'm doing is instead of allowing the text to be authoritative and being in a conversation with the text, I'm telling the Bible what it must say. And that's just going to reinforce all of my previously held biases. (laughs) How would you handle that? Because I know that's a weasel answer. I did not give you a good answer to that question, but yeah. Well, no, it's not really a weasel answer. I mean, it's definitely the type of answer that needs to be sort of discovered in conversation. So this is an appropriate way to kind of kick it back to me and have that. I grew up in an environment where the culture war was really, really important. And in the 90s, there was the homosexual agenda perpetuated by the evil Democrats. Like, (laughs) that was sort of what I grew up with, right? And as I became a young adult and into my late 20s, what I kind of learned was that a lot of the people on the political right, which included a lot of the Christians that I knew, were very much up in arms about things that either weren't happening, were happening in ways that just made them unsettled. And so they were happening, but they weren't like such a cultural threat. Well, I don't know if it just meant that like we needed to wait around long enough for them to like sort of be right about it. But there are things that have come around in the culture wars that I think are probably worth paying attention to. And I actually have found myself thinking, should I have paid attention to this all along? And I'm sort of thinking out loud here, a little off the top of my head. And I don't think the answer is yes, because there are far deeper, important questions that I needed to, in my journey, figure out that had more to do with my journey with Christ, my journey with my wife, my faith and my children, like all those kinds of things that are like a lot deeper. And that there's like the culture, we're not recording this on video, I'm like holding my hands up above, there's this level (laughs) up here, that's like the culture stuff is like up here, and it's very present, it's very public, we got the media telling us that this is something that we need to be, that has to be important. And we have to take a stand on this. And then you have these like deeper level things that are the desire to love God and love our neighbor, right? Those are deeper level things. And I realize you even have an episode on like what the meaning of love is scripturally versus this sort of cultural love sort of definition, (laughs) right? 
But like assuming that for the sake of our conversation in the audience, we understand the depths of what love truly means, right? A biblical definition or a Christ-like definition of love, a cruciform definition of love, right? So we have that in mind. And so those kinds of things, like the closer you get to how do I love others better and how does that reflect how I love God better, those are the ones that are going to be major ones, right? Yeah. That doesn't really answer the question of like, well, which beliefs are the right ones to have? Like in theory, I could love God and love my neighbor and not believe in a historical resurrection, I guess, right? I mean, I don't really know how that would work, right? But like in theory, right. I guess you could say that. I mean, Marcus Borg, I don't think believes in yeah. the historical resurrection. And, you know, yeah. I mean, N.T. Wright engaged with him a lot. I'm not sure Wright's views on Borg's eternal destiny. I don't think he would really venture to comment on that anyway. But from a personal level, that's kind of where I've landed is like, does what I believe help me love my wife, love my kids, love other people better? And that definition of love, I mean, obviously, that's not a cop-out answer. Like, oh, well, does this make me love better? Because you still have to answer the question of what does love look like? Because sometimes love looks like discipline, you know, disciplining your children. Like, I don't yeah. love my child by making sure he's not upset with me, right? right? Or retains good feelings about me simply because I don't want to punish him for doing things on the internet he shouldn't be doing, right? You know, right. playing too much gaming and disobedience and all whatever those things. I mean, we, as parents, we can kind of think of those things as easy. But the definition of love sets the parameters by which whether or not you can kind of, whether or not that's actually legitimately important. So I would say that. I don't know if I even answered entirely your question. Those are the thoughts that came up and how I responded. And you can keep talking about it. No, I mean, I think that's really great. And again, what matters, some of the best Christians that I have met in ecumenical context, like not just in one particular denomination, but you know, all, all over the place, some of the best Christians that I've met should never teach Sunday school. <laughs> and so the, 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 these, are, these are people that are incredibly kind and compassionate, like yeah. a great model to me. Like some of the people that have been the most influential in terms of how I treat others in my life are people that I would never trust teaching the Bible, even to children, right? And so, yeah. uh, and so I think that there is this disconnect between I think sometimes that we think a sign of authentic faith is having all of our theological ducks in a row, so to speak. We can recite all of our confessions Mm, and creeds and we know all of our books of the Bible and all of that stuff. We look at that as a sign of authentic faith, but in reality, it's the way that we treat other people that really matters. And that's kind of the consequence because again, we're called as Christians to build the kingdom of God and we can't do that if we're not meeting the needs of other people. And if we worship a crucified Messiah, then that's the added, I mean, this is what Paul says in Philippians chapter two, have this attitude in yourselves that was also in Christ. He goes through that whole thing there in Philippians two. And I think that's kind of the model that we ought to have. That's not to say that theology isn't important because it really is. And we do have to have boundaries to define the church. And I, I do think that there are people that have beliefs about the Bible and beliefs about Jesus that put them outside of the boundaries of the church. And you can even see that like in the New Testament, they're constantly trying to define the boundaries of who is and who is not out. And I think too, fundamentally in the New Testament, if you look at it, the biggest issue that is faced by the writers of the New Testament is the issue of Jews and Gentiles. And it's not whether or not Jews can become Christians, it's whether or not Gentiles can be a part of the family of Abraham without having to become Jewish first. And so the way that Paul deals with this in Romans and Galatians and Ephesians in particular, and this is also a major theme in the book of Acts as well, is that those that are a part of Abraham's family, those that are a part of the family of God are defined by faith in the Messiah. And so if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and again, there are a lot of different ways that people interpret messianic themes in the New Mm -hmm. Testament. I think 
you and I probably have a very similar interpretation of what that means, which is why we're libertarians. But however you interpret that, having faith in Christ is the thing that makes you a part of the family of God. And it's up to the spirit to sort the rest of that out. Again, I always go back to Paul and Romans. It's Romans 8, I think 13, where Paul says that it's the spirit that enables us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. This is a lifelong process of growing into our faith and trying to put off the things that hold us back. I think that's kind of my approach to all of it. Again, it's not that doctrine and theology aren't important because they absolutely are. And I think these debates and these conversations are really important to have. But I think the greatest thing is trying to cultivate that faith that loves God and serves other people. Yeah. That's one thing that like no scholar and no Christian, like it's just average person in the who wants to have an opinion about faith and theology is going to dispute is loving God and loving your neighbor is sort of a non-negotiable. Like no one's disputing that. You're not having scholars out there saying that's not a Christian thing to do, right? Or yeah. a Christian thing to believe right. even. Whereas the historicity of Jonah or whether or not this or that happened in certain parts of the Old Testament, those kinds of things can be in dispute. And, and it's, I look at it as like, okay, how contentious is this issue? And is it just simply because people are disagreeing or is it because there's like a reason that keeps me from believing that there is a God, the basic narrative of the scripture that is in jeopardy or anything like that. And it's like, if it's not, okay, I can kind of go either way. That's a broad right. brush to paint here for me, but that's kind of where I land. Hi, this is Gregory Baus. And this is Carrie Baldwin. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may want to check out the other shows in the Christians for Liberty Network, such as the Reformed Libertarians podcast hosted by me and Carrie. We educate and inspire listeners to embrace and promote libertarianism as grounded in the Reformed faith. The Christians for Liberty Network is dedicated to offering a variety of content you love, like what you're hearing in this very episode. So now back to the show, and then be sure to check out reformedlibertarians.com. I'm going to do a hard pivot on the topics here because... Okay, all right, let's do this. <laughs> there's like four or five topics here that we could talk about, and I don't want to take up too much time here. But you're one of the first people that I've heard in a really long time that does not speak disfavorably of postmodernity yeah. or of postmodernism. And before we jump into that, I think it would be helpful for us to hear from you what you understand it to be. And then it probably would be a really useful thing to talk about Wittgenstein and his view on language versus Augustine's. Yeah, I think that's really important. So and we could talk for six hours on this, of course, but we'll do oh, what we can. All right. Yes, let's do it. All right. So <laughs> postmodernism is a really controversial topic. And it is a word like woke and like capitalism and like all kinds yeah, of words that yeah. are thrown around in the popular media, but Fascist. never defined. Yeah. Right. And postmodernism is one of those words that's used about everything, but like very few people offer a definition for it. And I think a part of this is by design because postmodernism is itself a multifaceted phenomenon. Like postmodernism isn't one thing. And so there are a lot of philosophers and architects and cultural critics that consider themselves postmodern. What they mean by that is very different than what somebody in a different field means when they use the term postmodern. It's the aspect of postmodernism that I'm attracted to because I really don't care about the cultural or architectural stuff. Yeah, yeah. The aspect of postmodernism that I'm attracted to is the epistemological aspect of it, the way that we think about knowledge. And so essentially postmodernism means after modernism and the worldview that resulted from the Enlightenment is called the modern worldview. And the way that the Enlightenment thinkers conceptualize knowledge is 
is that it was objective. There was just knowledge out there in the universe to be discovered, like an archaeologist would discover artifacts if he dug in the dirt, and mm -hmm. that we as thinking people could objectively apprehend this knowledge that just existed out there in the world. And so this led to this belief in the hegemony of reason, that human reason could discover absolutely everything there was to know about every aspect of existence and about every aspect of nature. And if human beings utilize science, not only could we understand what happened in the natural world, but we could also learn to control it as well. And for many of the thinkers of the Enlightenment, they believed that this was like an absolute process, that one day we would wake up as a human species and just know everything because it was out there to be discovered. And so they came up with the corollary doctrine of progress to denote the process by which human beings applied reason and science to the world around them and eventually discovered every aspect of the universe that was possible. And I think from an epistemological standpoint, postmodernism is a rejection of the idea of objective knowledge. So postmodernist philosophers like Michel Foucault and like Jean-Franco Lyotard, who are the two postmodernists that I'm the most familiar with because I've read quite a bit of their work, they would say that knowledge is not objective in any way. They would make the point that I was making about the Bible earlier, that all human beings are a product of a particular social and cultural environment. And that social and cultural environment will always and forever shape the way that they understand the world around them. And so that colors our ability as human beings to know what is and is not about the reality that is around us. And so they would also say, instead of there being knowledge out there to discover, like an astronaut might discover another planet, that knowledge is a product of the human mind instead of just something that exists. And so as a product of the human mind, knowledge isn't discovered, it's produced. And it's produced by subjective people that have their own social and cultural and political biases when they are producing that knowledge. And both Foucault and Leotard, and this I think is very interesting from a libertarian perspective, and I think Nick Gillespie at Reason Magazine has done a really great job as a libertarian of kind of looking into the insights that postmodernism offers us as libertarians. Mm -hmm. But from a libertarian perspective, both Foucault and Leotard connected that production of knowledge to power. Okay, so given that knowledge is not objective and that human beings can't possibly know everything, how is it and why is it that we produce certain kinds of knowledge in certain cultural contexts? And so like Foucault came up with this idea of genealogy where he makes the case that every idea has a history. Like these ideas there's not just like a perfect form of an idea that exists out there in the universe. All of these ideas are generated in cultural contexts that are defined by these kind of power plays by various people that are there. And so in order to understand how ideas have changed and morphed over history, we have to understand the cultures in which these ideas are shaped and also understand that we cannot be unbiased in the way that we analyze these ideas. And so if I had to sum it up, really, again, postmodern means a lot of different things. I'm really concerned about the epistemological consequences of it. If modernism is about trying to explore, I guess, the horizons of human knowledge, postmodernism is trying to explore its limits. How far can we as subjective human beings know? And some postmodernists are very skeptical about this. I'm not. I think the human beings can actually know quite a bit about the world around us. Part of that is because I'm a Christian and I think that God has revealed quite a bit to yeah. us, but I also do not believe in objectivity. I don't believe that we can stand outside of our cultural context. The best that we can do is be aware that there's a problem and to try to limit our own subjectivity. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and that's a really good summary. And it's very much in alignment with what I learned in seminary about postmodernity and about postmodernism that was in contradiction to the types of people on the right sort of railing against postmodernity as if they didn't understand what it was. 
And yeah. I remember being one of those people and I had a classmate in college. It was like right after I got out of college, classmate from college was like, well, that's not postmodernism. You you don't really, I don't think you really understand this, Doug. And I was like, what? I thought I did. And so I was just kind of parroting terminology and the accusations about postmodernity. And it's sort of like the left calling everybody who has conservative <laughs> values fascists, right? Yeah. It's just like, you're just parroting that stuff. So back then I was like, oh, okay. So I looked into it a little bit. And what's interesting is obviously it is a multifaceted phenomenon because there's postmodernity, which is like the era we live in as it were. And there's the art and the architecture and those kinds of things. And then, of course, there's the philosophy and the epistemology. And the epistemology and the study of language and the understanding of language being used as power and also even using that to understand how the scripture was formed and how it was also how we can interpret it using rhetoric and so forth, which we'll have to talk about that another day. But it seemed really to set me up to realize that people are going to, like the media are going to use language to play power games with us. I mean, we've seen that over the last couple of years, right? In the COVID era, right? We've seen that where the media use language as a power game, right? And so the insights of postmodernity, I think, should not be unnoticed. I think where a lot of people get sort of mixed up is, first of all, you used, kept using the word knowledge. And a lot of times people think that postmodernity says that there's no truth. And yeah. I know there are postmodernists out there who believe that truth is 100% relative and it's all socially constructed and so forth like that. And I hear Thaddeus Russell, who's not quite a libertarian, but he's there and he's very an adamant postmodernist. But every mm -hmm. time he describes things, he's describing knowledge, not truth. And I'm just kind of like, man, I wish I could have a conversation with him. I mean, he's probably smarter than me. And so I don't know if I'd really get that far with him. But I'm like, dude, like, you're not talking about truth. You're talking about knowledge and our understanding. Right. Like he talks about how the science used to teach eugenics. No, that wasn't science. That was man's understanding of something, right? Right. That's knowledge, right? So that's where I think a lot of people get hung up on it. The other thing I think where people get hung up, and this is where I've sort of just ever so slightly questioned the whole postmodern philosophy is understanding from people like James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose and some of the yeah. anti-woke scholars just how useful postmodern insights have been to the critical theorists. Yeah. And, and seeing language as a power game and using that, I think Lindsay, he's quoting someone else, but he's basically saying they share your vocabulary, but they don't share your dictionary. And so yeah. they're going to use words like liberation and what they mean is Marxism, or what they right. mean is communism, right? And I was in seminary similar to when you were going in school and the, the whole anti-empire stuff, all there's a lot of literature on yeah. anti-empire. You'd hear about liberation and I'm thinking, oh, libertarian, liber liberty, freedom, liberation. Oh, that's similar. I kind of was wrong about that. I was like, oh wait, no, yeah. those aren't. These people are Marxists. Um, yep. And that's not to say that they don't have good insights. It's not to say that their interpretations of the biblical text are correct or are incorrect. But the insight that you look at language and can say there's a language game going on here right. is, I think, a pretty critical one to notice. And it seems fairly obvious to me that Wittgenstein is probably more right than Augustine with respect to how do we use yeah. language. And so, I don't know, you probably can articulate better that disparity or that contrast. So I'll, I'll let you kind of share that. Yeah, and I think that Wittgenstein represents kind of like a shift towards postmodernism. There are some people that want to categorize Wittgenstein as a postmodernist, and I'm not sure. I'm not a philosopher. I'm not, everything I know about philosophy has basically been self-learned and stuff that I picked up on when I was in school. But one of the really interesting thing about Wittgenstein is that he does with language what 
postmodernist philosophers do with knowledge. So Wittgenstein understands that language is not objective in and of itself. The words are socially, I mean, they are culturally and socially constructed. Like we as English speakers assign meaning to the words that we use. And he also makes the point that language is infinitely malleable. So you can change language for every single word. There's a semantic range and you can use a word in context mm-hmm. that was never designed to be used. And that over time, language changes just the nature of language. So language is a very useful tool, but it's also very slippery. It's very difficult to pin down. And one of the problems that Wittgenstein identifies in Philosophical Investigations, which is the book. And I would recommend, if you're going to read it, like it's broken up into two parts. The first like 60 pages are really good and it's very repetitive (laughs) after that. Okay. The argument that he makes in Philosophical Investigations is that one of the reasons why we have such a hard time communicating with each other is because we fail to realize that language is an objective. Like language is essentially a symbolic system, a semiotic system. So all that words are, are symbols, and those symbols refer to reference. But those reference, they exist in our mind. And so you might use a word, and in your mind, that word has a particular reference, but somebody else hears you say that word, and in their mind, that word has a different reference. And that leads to misunderstanding and dialogue between different people. And the point that he makes in this is that you kind of have to view language like a game. So if you are playing a game of basketball with somebody, but they think that you're playing a game of football, you're not going to be able to play a game because you're playing you're by two different injured. sets of rules. That's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, actually, <laughs> it sounds like a fun game, um, but, but, it's, but it's probably not going to work very well. Well, and I was just going to say, like, you can see this at work in the woke agenda. Yes. The woke operatives are basically doing this because they're going to use words that, are, that sound like words we all agree with. Like, who does not agree with... I found myself the other day thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion in a positive way. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't even use those words because those don't actually mean in like in my head, my referent means the denotative version of that, right? Yeah. We want a diverse view of libertarianism on the Christians for Liberty Network. We want to include all kinds of people and we want to sort of have equal amounts of airtime. Okay, right. that's kind of how my mind went. And something like that, it's like, crap, I can't use, I can't use this phrase. Right. Yeah. No, I completely get what you're saying. That's the point that Wittgenstein's going to make with language games is that if you want to have a productive conversation, you have to set the rules for the game. So in other words, if you're having a conversation, both parties have to agree on a similar set of vocabulary before you have a productive conversation. If not, the conversation is always going to degenerate into a form of lexicographical anarchy. I know anarchy is a good thing in this context, but yeah, uh, yeah. but it's a bad thing in that context, right? Yeah, yeah. Because the people that are a part of that conversation aren't going to be able to understand or interpret what other people say. And so his point is that you have to understand that language has no objective meaning, right? And so if you want to have a productive conversation, you have to pin down a meaning for mm-hmm. the terms that you are going to use in that conversation, understanding that the definition of those terms are only going to be applicable in that conversation and that those terms can be used in a different context to mean something entirely different than they are in the context yeah. of that particular discourse. And again, to your point, like both Friedrich Hayek and George Orwell wrote in the 1940s. So George Orwell in 1984 has the category of newspeak where the, what, I don't, what's the government? Is it Oceania? What's whatever the authoritarian yeah, government? Uh, Oceania has always been at war with East Asia or East Asia has always been at war with Eurasia. Or yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, they come up with the language of newspeak. And so essentially what the government that Orwell has written about is completely redefined language. And then 
the Friedrich Hayek in The Road to Serfdom has a chapter called The End of Truth, where he talks about this phenomenon too. And he's looking at like the Soviet Union and he's looking at Nazi Germany. And he just talks about how they constantly manipulate language and they use terms that their subjects are familiar with and that their subjects have positive emotions mm-hmm, towards. Mm-hmm. They redefine what those terms mean. They convince everyone to accept them. And then they implement their policy and say, look, we're bringing you justice and peace and all of those things that you said you wanted. And all of that was based on a manipulation of language, which I think yeah. is what, I mean, it's exactly what you were saying just a second ago yeah. about the politically correct stuff. Oh man, there's so much there to talk about. You have clearly demonstrated that you've read a lot of books. What are you currently reading? So right now I have two open. I am reading just a two? book. But How can you only have just two? I've got a stack of like eight or more. I try my hardest to go one at a time. It never works. So I try to limit myself to two. I'm reading one by a scholar named Justin Bass. It's called The Bedrock of Christianity. And he outlines all of the essential facts about the New Testament that nearly all New Testament scholars, agnostic, atheist, Muslim, Christian, that nearly all New Testament scholars agree on. And so he's trying to build a case for Christianity based on like the bedrock facts that are agreed. It's a very good book. He actually, I found out about his work. There's a podcast. Are you familiar with the show Unbelievable? Oh, yeah. I've had Justin on, on my show before, yeah. Oh, have you? Oh, I'm going yeah, to yeah. I'm gonna have to go back in the archives and check that one out. Yeah, we talked about his book on uh, why after interviewing atheists for 10 years, he's still a Christian. And it's just sort of a basic why I still believe. Is he just as good of a guy in person as he appears to be on his show? Oh, yeah, yeah. And he was so gracious. I think he even got up early because of our time zone difference and all of that. Like he was, cool. or maybe it was I got up early. I don't remember. But it was like, it was just really great. And he had his studio guys record locally and it was just kind of cool. That's awesome. That's awesome. He has a podcast with N.T. Wright called Ask N.T. Wright Anything. Oh, yeah. It's good. I mean, I know N.T. Wright's position on a lot of things. And like I said, I agree with N.T. Wright on less now than I did 10 years ago. But he has some really good content on there. And Justin Bass has been like a guest host. So that's how I came into contact with his work. It's a really great book. I'm about three quarters of the way done and I'd highly recommend it. The other book that I'm reading is called Coming to Palestine by Sheldon Richman, who is a writer over at the Libertarian Institute. And I think he does mm-hmm. some stuff with Scott Horton at antiwar.com yeah, yeah. about the Israeli and Palestinian conflict. I did not really know anything about that uh, okay. until I started reading his book. And so it's been very revealing to me just how, well, again, going back to the manipulation of language, just how pro-Israel the Western media is and how divergent our our presentation of the conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians is with what's actually happened there historically. So both really good books. Wait, Richmond is saying that the media is pro-Israel. Yes. Okay. So that's really interesting. And I don't want to dive into this too much because I'm just scratching the surface of this topic of anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. I'm adopted and my biological father's Jewish. Okay. And there's there's a whole history behind why I'm adopted. But anyway. So I have this sort of heritage that that is sort of part of my identity, but isn't. I mean, I grew up in a Christian family and it was always known that I had a biological father who's Jewish. And so, I don't know, the last few years, I've just been kind of like, I don't understand what anti-Semitism is all about. Like, I really don't get it. Like, I can understand somebody looking at a person of different skin color, talks different, physically looks different, culture is really different or whatever. I can't understand anti-Semitism. Like, I can understand racism and those kinds of things, but not anti-Semitism. And I'm just like, what's the big deal? Like, why do people hate Jews? Or why do some people hate Jews? So I'm reading quite a few books on it. And it is the perception, at least I'm gaining, that it is partly the perception of a lot of 
people that Palestine, the plight of the Palestinian is the focus of most media stories and that it is the default that Israel is the last bastion of colonialism. Like they're the ones still being the colonizers. And as you know, any sort of like anybody with a woke mindset is going to be dead set against any sort of colonialism, right? Yeah. And so it's interesting. I mean, I obviously, I mean, we don't have to dive into that too much, but I just found it interesting that like that's his sort of take on it. It does also fit with the whole like Jews control the media sort of trope, which, which <laughs> I right. don't know. I think if Jews controlled the media, we would hear about the actual data of anti-Semitic attacks that are happening. And we don't really hear about that. You right. think that'd be made more prevalent if they were truly controlling the media. But that's just right. that's a side remark, really. But interesting. Yeah, no, and this is really kind of my first foray into the topic. And again, this book, Coming to Palestine, is a collection of articles. And I've only read about eight of them, and I think there are like 40. So it okay. probably gets more nuanced as the, the book sure, goes on. Sure. That is really, so I wanted to ask you too, I guess, so you showed me a book before we started recording here. Is that what you're currently reading now? Well, it's With all that, the colors that, on the among, <laughs> that among a handful that are on my Kindle. So I'm reading, I just got a book by David Bernstein, who, or Bernstein, I don't ever know how to pronounce this. It depends on the person, I suppose. He is the founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. And he wrote a book published 2022, Woke Antisemitism, How a Progressive Ideology Harms Jews. I'm reading also Michael Brown's book, Christian Antisemitism. I had no idea how many church fathers were anti-Semites. Oh, oh um, so many. <laughs> like, I just, I was totally like, I'm going to do this. I have a leftist friend who quotes John Chrysostom quite a bit because it's all about the poor. And there's always this like, it's always about like serving the poor and how people are greedy if they hold on to their money instead of give it away. And so I'm just going to, comment on next time he posts something, I was like, oh yeah, the Nazis' favorite founding church father. <laughs> I say founding father, but church father. I was right, like, yeah. oh, so let's see. Anti-Semitism by Julie New... I can't... Uh, it says that I've read it, so I can't t- read her name on the on my Kindle here. What it is, what it isn't, why it matters. David Badil, Jews don't count. Anti-Semitism, a disease of the mind. And then I also just finished listening to a book called People Love Dead Jews by Dara Horn. And then there's... I ordered this one called... a. Brief and Visual History of Anti-Semitism. I'm not kidding. It's a textbook-sized book. Like, it's literally an inch and a half thick. (laughs) And it's actually, it's funny enough, it is very quick and easy to read because it's got a lot of visuals to it. But it was just funny that, like, this really heavy book comes in the mail. It says Brief and Visual History of Anti-Semitism. So I'm kind of (laughs) diving into that in terms of my reading. And then, of course, I've also been reading a lot about the woke stuff, critical theory, critical race theory. When I get a chance to read fiction, which I am trying to read at least one fiction book at a time, I'm reading right now called Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead. It's fiction, totally, about twins whose parents were trapped. No, they died at sea, and she learned how to fly after being an orphan, being raised by her uncle, and had this sort of, this is in the 20s, so there was this like bootlegger who was wealthy, and he wanted to help her learn to fly, and so there's that. And then it also there's this story of somebody in the present, 100 years later, and she's got a very similar story. She's an actress, wants to play this other girl from the 1920s in a movie, and so just fiction. And it's somewhat about aviation, and I'm into aviation, so that's just kind of an interest there. So... That's, yeah, that that's kind of what I'm reading. I mean, I'm reading a handful of other things. I bought N.T. Wright's commentary on Colossians because our life group is starting to read through Colossians. And I was kind of like, you know, what? I just want to brush up on my little bit deeper knowledge without getting too academic. So doing yeah. that. And if you showed up at my house and saw the bookshelf, you'd see about probably a two dozen books that I bought in the last year, year and a half that I 
sort of dabbled in. <laughs> and yeah. most of them are about all the topics I just mentioned. <laughs> yeah. No, that's really cool. That's one of the things I appreciate about your show, especially like with critical theory, because I didn't discover LCI until like, I don't know, it's only been like four or five months. No, I guess it was back in, I guess it was back in June after, maybe a May or June after I started the podcast. But I really appreciate how you dive into topics like critical theory and you really try to approach it from as objective an angle as mm. possible. It just, you do a really great job of presenting all of that information. That's, and I mean, again, your conversation with Neil Shimby a couple of weeks ago, fantastic. Like, I just, I really appreciate what you guys and what you in particular are doing with the show. It's great. Oh, well, I appreciate hearing that. With respect to the critical theory stuff, it's been increasingly difficult as I learn more about it to be unbiased in going about it because it's like, okay, I've given this a fair shake and it's just not, I can't, it's hard to do from here right. on out. For me, it goes back to, well, the Republicans are railing against it. They're probably overblowing things and making things sound worse than they really are. Let me go see what's going on here. And indeed, they are doing that. But yeah. also, indeed, things are happening that they are saying shouldn't happen. And yes, there is more going on there. And so we've had quite the conversation here. We've yeah. talked about a handful of things. I know that at least some or most of the stuff that we've talked about that you've talked about, you've covered on your show, the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. I also know that you're going to probably show up in terms of interviews and guest appearances on some of the other Christians for Liberty Network shows. I don't know if the other hosts might beat me to publishing their interview with you than this one. This <laughs> one might be the last one. Who knows? Because I get ahead. There's my uh, jab at them. Right. Where can they find your podcast? Are you on Apple Podcasts, Spotify? Or are you on all of them? Where can they listen yeah. if they want to? Everywhere that you listen to podcasts, you can listen to my podcast, except I'm not on YouTube because I don't want it to get taken off. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's funny. That's funny. All right. Well, hey, Alex, I really appreciate you joining me for this. And I'm sure we'll talk again. Yeah, it's been a great conversation, Doug. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.